Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and so glad that you have tuned in today for this uh, special edition of the broadcast. I mean, here we are now. Uh, we're past Holy Week. We're in the officially the season of Easter. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ was uh, crucified. Christ was dead and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again and uh, ascended. Well, he hasn't ascended yet. I mean, in the biblical narrative, uh, he's now spending the 40 days with the disciples and uh, being witnessed. Uh, his resurrection has been witnessed by over 500 people at this point. If you've ever had a chance to see the movie Risen, I highly recommend it. They do a wonderful job of telling the story uh, from the perspective of a Roman soldier who was part of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. Was also uh, the. It's not a huge stretch to take this to take that story and tell it the way it was told because uh, Joseph Fiennes, I believe, is the guy who plays the, uh, the, the, the Roman centurion. And he was the guy, you, you've heard that story, the, um, the legend, as it were, about uh, the number of people who believe that Jesus didn't actually, uh, wasn't actually risen from the dead, did not resurrect, but rather that someone stole his body and they paid off the Roman soldiers and blah, blah, blah. Well, the idea here is let's follow what happens to Jesus after his resurrection. And this soldier then starts to follow him and see him reconvene with the disciples. It's a great movie. It's called Risen. Should be available at Pure Flix or one of those places, but uh, highly recommend it. Let's not, uh, th there's a big letdown. The Sunday after Easter, I will never forget the last time I had the privilege of preaching on um, on Easter Sunday. I was serving as interim pastor at my former home church of Lutheran Church of the Cross in Laguna Woods in Aliso Viejo. I was the Aliso Viejo campus pastor. And we had a, I mean, Easter, we weren't sure. You know, just, it was, you know, the guy filling in, you never can tell. We had a longtime pastor there who had taken a new calling to move to Oregon. And uh, we had a sunrise service that we thought some people might show up at. And then we had our regular service. Typically, our sunrise service used to get anywhere from 25 to 50, 30 people. We had over 50. And then our Easter sunrise service generously had been counted at uh, you know, somewhere around 100 or so. We had 190 people, most of whom, because I'm that numbers guy, did not go to the sunrise service. A lot of the sunrise people went and helped out. But it was, it was just a great day, and it was a wonderful time. The Sunday afterwards... The Sunday after Easter at our church, that same campus, we had 30 people. So I want to encourage you, if you had a big Easter production, if maybe your pastor took a couple days off or whatever, please make sure you are uh, in, in fellowship. Let, let's make sure that we carry this through. The Easter season, the whole season of Pentecost, and you know we've got the uh, uh, you know, waiting for the ascension coming in 40 days, and then Pentecost in 50, hence the penny. So I really encourage you to, to be in worship this weekend. Uh, good news to report on a couple of different fronts regarding issues. I mean, the one issue that seems to be becoming, be, uh, becoming overwhelmingly huge in the culture is anything having to do with the LGBTQ community. I was talking with a, a colleague the other day, and we were thinking back to the Obergefell decision by the Supreme Court eight years ago, 2015, and that legalized same-sex quote-unquote marriage. Now, there's no law. There's just a Supreme Court ruling. This is what, what's happening in the culture right now is you see a lot of states that are trying to codify abortion into state law. For 50 years, 49 and a half years, they just relied on the fact that the Supreme Court decision in Roe versus Wade, and, uh, excuse me, and um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 
had basically said, okay, it's going to be the law. But behind the scenes, many states had actually passed laws saying abortion is legal here, it's the law, or abortion is illegal. And they were wait, waiting for Roe to be overturned. Now, as, as some estimates have that 19 states are pro-life states and 31 plus the District of Columbia are not. Uh, some have it as high as 25 or 26, you know, kind of a 50-50 split. But the question colleague and I had was, you know, after this, the, the same-sex marriage thing happened, well, now you've got states that are running around saying, well, we've got to codify same-sex, quote-unquote, marriage into law because they realize they're relying on the Obergefell decision. So you may see uh, laws being passed. You may see ballot initiatives showing up in 2024. So keep your eyes peeled for that and know that if a state, I mean, theoretically, in California, when Prop 1 was on the ballot last fall, and notice Governor Newsom made sure that the legislature and everyone, they passed, they rushed it in. All the other propositions were numbered in the 30s and or 20s, and Proposition 1 was at the head of the ballot that codified abortion all the way through labor and delivery and beyond for several weeks afterwards. If And, and what that does is it, they try to acknowledge people go, you're kidding, you can deliver a baby and then kill the baby? Well, not necessarily if a woman does give birth and she can't keep the child and california of course doesn't have safe surrender laws then technically you could just leave the child out in the cold and the child could starve to death it's, it's just it's horrible but what these laws are actually intended to do is to protect abortionists who perform abortion basically it's a kermit gosnell exemption remember kermit gosnell the guy in pennsylvania was snipping the spinal columns of babies who, quote-unquote, kept moving after they were aborted. They, he would perform an illegal abortion. The abortion wouldn't take. The baby would be lying there writhing in agony on the gurney, and he would come up behind them and literally come base to their neck and snip the, the, the spinal cord. And he said it was to get the body to stop moving. He's now serving four life sentences for killing at least four babies this way. So what does the abortion lobby do? The abortion lobby doubles down and now says that if a child is born alive after an attempted abortion, the child can basically just lie there and starve to death for up to four weeks afterwards, or if the child, they try to nurse the child to help the child dies, and the abortionist will not be charged with murder. Well, how can you murder something that isn't really human and not really alive? Anyway, I, I said this is good news Friday, <laughs> but this is where the law goes. So they're trying to do this with same-sex, quote-unquote, marriage, trying to do this with abortion, and now the transgender thing. And that was the conversation with my colleague. He said, did you notice that ever since gay, quote-unquote, marriage passed the Supreme Court, now it seems like the whole world is trying to transgenderize everybody? Well, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey has put some safeguards in, guardrails, if you will, that's what his office calls them, with regard to gender transition interventions for minors. And basically the idea is trying to get some sense into this conversation. Here's what happens right now. I'll give you a true life story. It happened in the, uh, well, I say the Marsh extended family. It happened in the Maker household. That's my daughter, Emily, and her husband, Brian, and my grandson, Isaac. Now, Isaac loves his Aunt Kaylee, Emily's younger sister. Just loves Kaywee. And Uncle Kevin, 
just the, that's her husband, just loves them. They hung the sun, moon, and stars. As she puts it, he wants to do everything I do. By the time he's 13, he'll be like, eh, I don't need you anymore. But right now, at five, he thinks she's great. She and her husband flew from Southern California to Houston a couple weeks ago. They were hanging out, just a kind of a surprise visit. Um, other ulterior motives, which I'll talk about later. But anyway, so she's there, and they're staying the night at the house. And so the guest bedroom in Em and Brian's house is there's there's guest bedroom in the front of the house, then there's a bathroom, then there's Isaac's room. And so they all share the same bathroom. So that night they're getting ready for bed, and Kaylee's brushing her teeth, and Isaac goes, oh, let me get my toothbrush. I want to brush my teeth like, like you. So they brush her teeth together, and he says, hey, do you want to wake up early tomorrow and brush our teeth again? And she says, yeah, let's do it. And he goes, I get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And she said, yeah, I know you do. I've heard. Well, would I get up early too? So they get up early and they brush their teeth and they're going to go out and have something to eat and do some sightseeing. And Kaylee pulls out her makeup bag and Isaac looks at her and says, what is that, Aunt Kaylee? She said, it's my makeup. And she starts putting makeup on. And so he looks at her and says, can I put makeup on too? Now understand, in this moment, what is happening. A five-year-old boy is hanging out with his aunt and she's getting ready for the day and he is so happy to see her because he hasn't seen her since before Christmas that he's like, oh, we're brushing our teeth? I want to brush my teeth. Oh, you're doing your makeup? I want that, looks, that looks like fun. And she looks at him and she goes, no, buddy, I don't think that this is for you. You don't need to wear any makeup. How about we put some hair gel in your hair? Because he loves to get his hair all spiked up. She, oh, yeah. So then she, they go to the hair gel and she puts, starts combing her hair. Problem solved. You do realize that there are households in America right now where the minute... My grandson looked at his aunt and said, oh, you're putting on makeup? Can I try that too? They immediately would have hauled him off and said, that boy's transgender. I got news for you. A couple months ago, that boy wanted to be a transformer. I kid you not. And his older cousin wanted to be a giraffe. So did we make her trans species? Now, granted, Riley is 12 now and she's tall. She's taller than her grandma. She's probably going to be six feet tall. But there was a season where she wanted to be a giraffe. Did we take her off to training? Did we, did we start giving her animal injections? Because she said, no, you know why? Because she was five. So why has our society lost its collective mind when it comes to gender identity? Is it the kids actually saying they want to do this? Or is it their parents? Oh, my child's special, Munchausen. Oh, my child's really a boy and not a girl. Oh, my child's not really a girl, not a boy. Oh, what do we... Fortunately, there's one adult in the room in the state of Missouri, and that's Attorney General Andrew Bailey. He's issuing an emergency regulation that clarifies that because gender transition interventions are experimental, they are covered by existing Missouri law governing unfair deceptive and unconscionable business practices, including administering health care services. He has a new regulation in place that actually provides some clarity, and of course the LGBTQ community can't stand it. So we'll read it for you. Coming up next as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. 
Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years? After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Uh, anyone experiencing gender dysphoria has the right to be heard and the right to talk to somebody about what they're experiencing and to seek professional medical advice and get good recommendations for what, they're get, what they are going through. I would never tell anybody that their feelings are wrong if they are feeling in a certain way and they think for some reason, uh, maybe I'm a guy but I want to be a girl or the other way around. But one thing I really have a hard time with, and it's Good News Friday, so this is good news that we're about to report, is when well-intentioned or maybe maniacal adults look at innocent young children and say, oh, well, but how about the girl in... Um, uh, the Perez family in Miami area, in Florida State. 12-year-old girl who liked to hang out with guys and play video games, and one day one of her female friends said, you know, you ever thought you might be a guy? So she goes to a school guidance counselor and says, here's my story. It turns out the guidance counselor is a flag-waving rainbow person who says, oh, of course you are. I'm going to start calling you by a boy's name. I'm going to call you dude. I'm going to call you buddy. I'm going to call you boy. And then she starts doing it to the girl at school. Parents have no idea this went on for months until the second time their daughter attempted suicide because she thought my parents will never understand this is a girl who liked to play video games with boys andrew bailey is the attorney general of the state of missouri and basically he has issued an emergency regulation that clarifies that because gender transition intervention is experimental it's covered by existing Missouri law that governs unfair, deceptive, and unconscionable business practices. He says, as Attorney General, I will protect children and enforce the laws as written. And that includes upholding state law on experimental gender transition interventions. Even Europe recognizes that mutilating children for the sake of a woke leftist agenda has ir irreversible consequences. And it's very interesting. People go, well, we should be more like Norway. We should be more like the UK. We should be more like, you know, let's make America Europe again, right? Attorney General Bailey says, look, even countries like Sweden and Norway and the UK have all sharply curtailed these procedures. I am dedicated to using every legal tool at my disposal to stand in the gap and protect children from being subjected to inhumane science experiments. The new regulation clarifies that state law already prohibits performing experimental procedures in the absence of specific guardrails. The guardrails require medical professionals to inform patients, quote, that the use of puberty blocker drugs or cross-sex hormones to treat gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria is experimental. It's not approved by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And the FDA has actually issued a warning that puberty blockers can lead to brain swelling and blindness. Congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Your son is now a girl, but she has a swollen brain and can't see. 
The Attorney General's office characterized the move, quote, as necessary due to the skyrocketing number of gender transition interventions, despite rising concerns in the medical community that these procedures are experimental and lack clinical evidence or of safety or success. Now, the number of kids that are transitioning right now is relatively small compared to the hyperbole on both sides of the aisle. You know, millions of kids will die if we don't pass this bill or millions of kids will be affected. I mean, it's really more like thousands. That's still a lot. But the key word here is experimental. The key word here is we're asking if what's good for the goose should be good for the gander. Remember three years ago? When the pandemic began and some doctors were saying, hey, you know what? I've tried ivermectin to treat the effects of COVID-19. And the FDA, oh, you can't do that. It's not approved for that. <laughs> or what about z You know the good z I take one of those every year, it seems like, to clear up a sinus infection. Hey, if you take a z as soon as you find out you're testing positive for COVID, oh, no, you can't do that. I mean, because it's not approved for that. But then what about using Lupron on a boy whose parents want him to become a girl? Well, that's fine. Go right ahead. I mean, I mean that's what it's for, right? No, it's not for that. It's not, it is a hormone blocker, but it's to stop the flow of testosterone in the prostate so that you can treat a man who has, bre- uh, has breast cancer, who has prostate cancer. I mean, for crying out loud. It's plain as day, and yet the FDA has approved it for the guy who has prostate cancer. I could use Lupron if I needed it. I don't have prostate cancer. But my six-year-old grandson should not be subjected to that just because his, it would never happen. I mean, there's no way his parents would ever do that to him. But the FDA has a history of this. Our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom are investigating right now the use of mifeprostin, I guess the, the, the first part of the abortion, so-called medical abortion pills that literally starve a preborn child in the womb to death. That pill was never tested or approved for that purpose. They just use it that way. Someone figured out you could do it. Ask the doctors who are performing these surgeries how many of them actually have a set of quote-unquote American Medical Association approved standards for transgender surgery, and you'll find out, no, they're pretty much just, oh, that what you do? Okay, I did that great. I'll do that too. At least, thank the Lord, the Attorney General of the state of Missouri has taken the time to say, uh, this stuff is not legal, it's not FDA approved, and so it's my responsibility as the Attorney General to put in what I call guardrails. Sorry, you can't use it for this experimental treatment without at least notifying the parents that what is going to be happening to the kids is not been tested, it's experimental, and it could lead to tragic results medically and physically. When you bring that stuff in the light, then the left kind of melts, right? Why, why you can't tell them that? Why do you have to have parental consent? Well, let's see. If my 10-year-old goes to school and says, I have a headache, may I take an Advil that my parents sent with me? They won't let you take that pill. Why? Because you don't have the authorization to take that medication. But if that same 10-year-old says, I'm a boy who feels like a girl, they'll whisk you off to gender transition surgery. They'll give you counseling on the school grounds without telling your parents. Doesn't it seem a little bit odd that 10-year-old Timmy can become Tiffany at school but can't take an Advil if he has a headache? Mm. Thank you, Missouri Attorney General Bailey. We'll put this article up at thebottomlineshow.com.
As we continue, more good news. This in the sporting world with regard to somebody who says, hey, wait, if we have religious liberty in this country, then why do I have to be forced into celebrating something that is violation, I believe, of my deeply and sincerely held religious beliefs? As a diehard Anaheim Ducks fan who is passionately, (laughs) we don't like the San Jose Sharks at all. But I'll make an exception on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Barsh, getting a little hot under the collar here, but I just, I, I'm so grateful. I mean, I just, it's a mind-boggling that it takes someone like Andrew Bailey, the Attorney General of Missouri, to come in and say, I'm issuing a, an emergency executive order that all minors and all parents of minors have to be notified that all of this gender transit, in the left they call it gender-affirming care, could lead to brain swelling, blindness, mutilization, or mutilation, rather, and permanent sterility. But that's gender-affirming care. It's kind of like abortion care, where you're killing a child, where you're starving a baby in the womb, or ripping limbs off one by one. Abortion care. Give me a break. Well, uh, we wrap up this week. Uh, NHL playoffs, you know, getting all hot to trot. Um, it's amazing when you see what happens in different sports. There are certain sports where I, I'm kind of surprised to see like Major League Baseball kind of wearing the rainbow and NBA and NFL have kind of always been like that. But the National Hockey League getting into the so-called pride-themed gear uh, just kind of it's kind of seemed to rub me the wrong way a little bit. And something the NHL has been doing for the past season, I believe now, is they're trying to get into... Uh, NHL gear that is what they call, quote-unquote, pride-themed. Now, it's interesting because, remember, you, you, you had uh, Gay Pride Month happened in June, and then there's Gay History Month that happens in October, and there's some other gay theme that happens in January. Now it just seems like every day is a day to celebrate being homosexual. And, okay, um, if that's the way the NHL wants to play it, but let me ask you a question. If they did decide to do this for every player, what happens if a player says, I don't want to do this? Especially in the case of uh, the idea that you could you know, do this or not do it. Well, here's the deal. The uh, social media content from the NHL cites something from the Trevor Project, an LGBTQ advocacy group that has uh, research briefs that correlate religious beliefs with higher rates of suicide among LGBTQ people. So Christians are kind of the enemy, if you will. But Ivan Provorov, who is a player for the Philadelphia, no, New Jersey Devils, I believe, or was it the Flyers? Anyway, he was the first guy who said, I'm not going to wear the rainbow stuff. Now, the NHL tried to mute this. Basically, the players go out for what they call a skate-around before the match starts, and during the skate-around, you know, they take a few shots and they skate and whatever, they, they wear a special type of jersey or a sweater, and then on the game, they put on their game sweaters. Well, the NHL has been encouraging teams to have pride nights where they would encourage gay people to come and you know make a big deal out of it, and all the players would wear pride-themed jerseys for the skate-around beforehand. Well, we got another team now who took a stand for this, and not the team, but a player. James Reimer is a goaltender for the San Jose Sharks. And rather than wear the pride-themed rainbow sweater, Mr. Reimer 
opted to not participate in the pregame warm-up. He said the team's decision to wear NHL Pride-themed jerseys went against the teachings of the Bible and his, quote-unquote, personal convictions. Here's a part of the statement that he said, that he posted on social media. He says, for 13 years in my NHL career, I've been a Christian. Not just in title, but how I choose to live my life. I have a personal faith with Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins. And in response, he asks me to love everyone and to follow him. I have no hate in my heart for anyone. And I always strive to treat everyone that I encounter with respect and kindness. But in this specific instance, I am choosing not to endorse something that is counter to my personal convictions, which are based on scripture, the highest authority in my life. He also said he believes the LGBT community, like all others, should be welcomed in every aspect of the game of hockey. Basically, just don't make me wear the sweater. Now, what's interesting, of course, is the uh, the San Jose Sharks responded by saying, well, uh, the rights of individuals to express themselves, including how or whether they choose to express their beliefs, regardless of their topic, uh, is uh, is important. It was Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Ivan Provorov who didn't uh, participate in his uh, team's pride night. He described himself as an Orthodox member of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and so they were playing my Ducks. He did join the team on the ice during the game, and the Flyers won. And then afterwards, his jersey sold out. It became so popular. And the Flyers said, you know what? We're with it. Whatever you want to do, do it. But... NHL's Hockey is for Everyone initiative tries to leverage the game of hockey and the league's global influence to drive positive social change and foster more inclusive communities. Well, guess what? More and more teams are taking a move. The New York Rangers announced that they would not wear pride-themed jerseys uh, in a decision that they said surprised a lot of their fans. Quote, our organization respects the LGBT community. We are proud to bring attention to important local community organizations as part of another great pride night. In keeping with our organization's core values, we support everyone's individual right to respectfully express their beliefs. So the team on the whole, no rainbow jerseys for the Rangers. If individual players want to do it, they want to do it. And basically what it boils down to, isn't that the way it should be? I mean, we in the body of Christ are members of the body of Christ. We comprise the body of Christ. Each of us is being purified for the day when our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, will descend and claim his bride and the wedding banquet of the Lamb is going to be spectacular. But each of us individually has to give an accounting for God as well. When that day comes, how will you respond? That's the bottom line. Coming up, a true biography that reads like a crime thriller. It's one of the best known and loved stories in the church. But do you know the actual biography of Corey Tenboom? Her biographer, Larry Loftus, joins me next as the bottom line continues. Life insurance will never replace the person you love, but that money can help you get through life when it feels impossible. When your life insurance claim is denied while you're already dealing with so much, you need someone on your side. Stephanie Cover of Coverlaw used to work for the insurance companies. She challenges and understands the way insurance companies think. Hire Stephanie to file a life insurance appeal while everything is still fresh in your mind. Don't let the insurance company get away with greedy behavior while you're in mourning. Stephanie Cover will do everything in her power to get you the financial protection which was promised to you as a beneficiary of the policy. The money from the life insurance proceeds can supplement your income so you can support yourself throughout the process of bereavement. 
Save Stephanie's number or call her now at 877-214-4935. That's 877-214-4935. Or you can fill out a contact form at kbrightradio.com slash Coverlaw. Stephanie Cover, she knows the other side. It's one of the most remarkable stories ever told, and yet it's possible it may never have been told as well as it is in a brand new book. Now, did that get your attention? Today here on The Bottom Line, we're going to take a look at the story of Corey Ten Boom in a slightly different light in a brand new book by Larry Loftus, who's with me today here on the program. The book is called The Watchmaker's Daughter, The True Story of World War II Heroine, Corey Ten Boom. And there's a link for this brand new book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Larry Loftus, welcome to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you, Roger. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you, especially with the uh, the pedigree, of course, that you bring with you. And, and the, uh, you're described as someone who writes a lot of nonfiction thrillers. I mean, kind of, kind of help us understand what that means, because a lot of people did sure. imagination. And of course, you know, you come from the John Grisham mold of here's an attorney who writes really great books. But, right. you know, <laughs> but but help us understand where you kind of found your your way in terms of the kind of books that you've been getting New York Times bestseller awards for. Well, I was back in the day when I was in college, I was a political science major, so I did nothing but read all day long of what had (laughs) happened in history. And Uh then so went to law school, continued to write, uh, published in academic journals, et cetera. And then uh, when I decided to start what I'm doing now, which is what I love, is writing about World War II stories. I wanted to write them as thrillers because I'm a fan of thriller writing. Sure. One of my favorites was Vince Flynn and and some others that, that you know are out there today, Brad Taylor, Brad Thor, Jack Carr, all those guys. So I like thrillers and I wanted to be able to merge the two. And I know that's kind of an oxymoron because nonfiction is supposed to be a straight biography, straight mm-hmm. history. A lot of people think that's boring. But on the other hand, fiction is exciting and it's fast paced and it's moving. And you can feel like you're in the story, but it's made up, you know. <laughs> right. so I wanted to combine the two. And when I had started back uh, in about 2014, I told my agent that I had a manuscript for um, an historical fiction novel about uh, the spy who had inspired James Bond, Dusko Popov. And so he got it and he read it. And he goes, now, is most of this true? And I said, it's all true. And he said, well, if it's true, just do it as straight narrative nonfiction. There you go. Uh, You know, like Eric Larson or Laura Hillenbrand. And I said, okay. Mm. And so that allowed me then to do what I really wanted to do was to put it into a thriller structure. Now, it's nonfiction, so I can't make anything up. Um, Every word of dialogue that you see in in all of my books is verbatim from a primary source. That's what was Mm. said at the time. Mm-hmm. So I can't make anything up. Uh, same with all the things that happen. I can't change dates. But what I can do, what I get to decide is where to end chapters. Okay. So when, when something yeah. exciting is about to happen, where a dead body is found, for example, in The Princess Spy, a uh, book I wrote about an OSS um, agent named Aileen Griffith, she, you know, one day she has a dead body and finds a dead body in her bed. You know, so I have to stop the <laughs> the chapter there. Yeah, sure. So the reader goes, "Oh, what happened? Who is it?" You know, and and code name Lee. So I've got another spy, SOE agent. She falls. They're 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 coming down a mountain one night in the middle of the night. She falls about thirty feet, and Peter Churchill, her her organizer, the person that organized her spy circuit, 
thought she was dead. And, and, and he's, he's calling her name. He's slapping her face. He's rubbing snow in her face. Mm-hmm. At least where, at least wake up, wake up, wake up. Yeah. And she's not responding. And so I end the chapter there because you don't know if she's died, if she's actually dead or not. Well, it turns mm-hmm. out she's not, she's not dead, but you have to continue reading. You have to turn the page. So that's just the, the fun that I have. I get to pick where the chapters end. And so I always do it where there's some kind of excitement going on, whether it's a gun or it's a dead body or it's a mystery or there's a missing briefcase, you know, um, or, or in the case of the watchmaker's daughter, things like, uh, you know, this guy's out there washing a window, washing the window of the uh, Ten Boom home, and they didn't order the w- windows to be washed. Mm. And, and he's mm-hmm. on the second floor. Well, there's no ledge. How's he up there? You know, these yeah. people are they, they have Jews in their home and, and Dutch divers in their home and they're all around a dining room table and they see this going on. And like, who is this guy? Well, you know, again, I have to, I end so that it carries the tension. So that's just a, a feature that you find in thrillers uh, as well as just pace. You know, you won't you don't want to bog down. And so what I do, because the the history side of me wants to include everything, everything that happened. Right. Right. Uh, and there are readers that want that. There are nonfiction readers, you know, people that read only World War II uh, books. So when I get to sections that I really want to include the information, but it kind of slows the pace down, it slows the story down, mm-hmm. I'll put it in a footnote. Or if it's really long, I'll put it in the end notes. Hmm. So that the reader can, those that want to, that can still read it, uh, the fine details of what happened. And um, but for the people that like fiction and like novels, that like pace, then they're happy too because they're not going to go to those places. They'll just keep reading, and the story continues. I love it. Larry Loftus is with me today here on The Bottom Line. His brand new book, I almost said brand new novel. I really had to catch myself on that one. It's called <laughs> The Watchmaker's Daughter, The True Story of World War II Heroine Corey Tenboom. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Larry, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are saying, oh yeah, I saw The Hiding Place. I know how this works. You know I mean? Whatever. And not realizing, but this is a true biography of Corey Tenboom. Talk about why why it was so important for you to tell this story. I mean, I love the, the way you describe the way you go after biographies like this, saying, hey, I write it like it's a thriller, but it's actual facts going in here. I'm not making this stuff up. But why was Corey's story so important for you to tell in biography form? Yeah, when I was looking for another book after I'd already written three books about spies and I wanted a different country and a different type person, so I had not covered the Netherlands and Corey was not a spy, uh, nor was her family, but they were involved in the Dutch resistance and the consequences are the same. If you get caught, you're either shot or sent to a concentration camp. Mm-hmm. But I was when I was researching Codename Lease, my second book, I, a friend told me, hey, read The Hiding Place. And I was familiar with Corey, Tim Boom, but I had not read The Hiding Place. So I read it, and it gave me a great perspective because my character in that earlier book, Odette Sansom, was at Ravensbrook at the same time that Corey was. Mm. And so reading Corey's book gave me a perspective of what also what she saw happening. My, my spy had been condemned to death. She's down in a dungeon cell. But Corey's on the outside. She's in the normal barracks. So it gave me a a lot of understanding of what happened on the outside. Well, when it comes time for the next book, my mind just kept going back to Corey. And I thought, well, there's the hiding place. But I learned from my prior three books, all of which had a prior biography or, or an autobiography, or in some cases, both. 
that the, the people that had written before me never covered most of the story. And I just had an inkling that The Hiding Place was only about, you know, maybe 10 percent of the story. So that's when I started research. So I had to read all of Corey's other books. She wrote two books, for example, about her father, Casper. Um, and then there are other people that, that aren't even mentioned in The Hiding Place. The second most important person in the story is a Dutch boy named Hans Poli, who was the first person into their home, permanent refugee, and stayed there longer than anybody else. And he's the one that came up with the idea of creating a hiding place. He's mm. not even in the story. And that can be explained because... Corey didn't actually write The Hiding Place. It was written by two professional writers, John and Elizabeth Sherrill, whose names are right under hers with with. That means these are mm -hmm. the people that wrote the yes, book. Right. And so they're interviewing her 35 years after all of this happened. And she doesn't remember. She didn't keep a diary. Well, Hans Poli did keep a diary of what happened every day in that home for all of those mm. raids and things that mm. happened. And so he wrote a book in 1983 called Return to the Hiding Place. And then Corey's nephew, Peter Van Warden, who was Corey's sister, Nolly's son, Peter had written a, his own memoir in 1954 called The Secret Place. So I had other primary sources to find out exactly what happened, people that were there at the time, in the scene, in history, when it really happened. So I was able to bring that to bear, as well as access to Corey's archives, the 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 Sherrills had no access to Corey's archives. You know, this their book came out in 71, and mm -hmm. the, her archives have not even been collected. And they're all, by the way, at the Wheaton College. They're at the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton okay. College. Mm -hmm. so I went there and went through four, for four days, went through all of her books and files and papers and photographs and letters she had written from prison. All of her passports are in there. Even the uh, people that come by the Beijing that signed their guest books in there. So literally a treasure trove. Uh, so I spent four days there with that. So the combination of having that and, and all of these other sources, not to mention what the Germans were doing, the British were doing, the Dutch were doing, and Queen Wilhelmina, who plays a, an important part in, in the story. She was the Queen of the Netherlands, and she was their Churchill. She had been exiled to England, but she gave fiery speeches. So she, for the Dutch, she was their Churchill. So none of that's in the hiding place. So anyway, it just allowed me to have a bigger picture of what was going on, uh, as well as having Anne Frank, uh, who's 13 years old, lives in nearby Amsterdam, 10 miles mm -hmm. away. And then another 13-year-old living in Arnhem, um, Audrey Hepburn. So mm -hmm. the, so I bring in those two as well, because they're, they're witnessing the same thing at the same time. Wow. So all of those other resources allow me to pull together a big, full picture of the whole Corey Tim Boom, Corey Tim Boom family story. Mm, that's amazing. And Larry Loftus has done such a masterful job of bringing this story together. The brand new book is called The Watchmaker's Daughter. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. It is the true uh, story of the World War II heroine Corey Ten Boom. And as I mentioned, that link, the book is just now out. Nothing but five-star reviews. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with more of this conversation with Larry Loftus in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Larry Loftus is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Powerful new book that Larry has written. And I want it's not even historical fiction. This is the real story. It's the story of Corey Ten Boom, like you've never seen it before. The Watchmaker's Daughter, the true story of World War II heroine Corey Ten Boom. It's just now out. It's up at thebottomlineshow.com. And during the break, Larry, we were talking about the fact that I mentioned that we had a lot of interest from our listeners with the Louis Zamperini story, the whole, of course, we're in Southern California, so he's got big SC connection and everything like that. 
that. But but beyond mm-hmm. that, the uh, the unbroken story, the movie, you know, the the books. I mean, it's 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 been very powerful for our our listeners. And I was thinking, this would be a great kind of companion piece. I mean, in terms of same type of era, same style of writing. Talk how are they complementary? How how does that all work? The way you've put it together. Indeed, they are. I mean, they're both World War II. In fact, um, we we I think we posted it maybe on a maybe it's it's on one of the uh, book websites. But it, the, the Watchmaker's Daughter is sort of a merger of, if you if you will, of two different stories. Uh, by way of analogy, just take Schindler's List, which was a very popular movie and right. and um, and book, and then Unbroken. Because you have the same drama, the same tension, the same daily death threat as you have in Schindler's List, but you also have a, you know, in this case, a heroine at the end of the story who is a Christian. You know, Zamperini's not a Christian at the beginning, but he becomes a Christian after the war. Right. Well, Corey and her family, they're, they're believers, you know, from, through, from the get-go. And so that was what inspired them to... Uh, assist not only the Jews who were in their area, but also the second group that was hiding were, the, were called Dutch divers. And those were Dutch boys who were between the ages of about 16 to about 30, 35, because the Germans would just snatch them off the street and send them mm. to work in a factory in Germany because the German you know, factory workers were in the military. Right. So they needed they needed warm bodies to work the factories. And if you were snatched up, pretty much you'd never be seen again. And one of Corey's nephews is in that very category, was snatched mm-hmm. up never to be seen again. Um, so it, it's it, so the book has both the feel of, of of both elements: the danger, the drama, the the daily death uh, concern, um, and, and even in Unbroken, you know, Zamperini gets beat up all the time. Well, right. Corey gets beat beat up too, <laughs> and so does mm. Betsy. And uh, so you have that element in, in the story as well. But um, I just love World War II because there's so many, you know, it was the one worldwide event. All countries were involved. And there's just five years of just this great drama that goes on day after day. Mm-hmm. How, Larry, when you were researching this, and of course, this is kind of your sweet spot, this era, as you just mentioned, we're looking at a time right now where there seems to be a dearth of work like this? I mean, in, in terms of, or maybe even a dearth of, of desire in the marketplace. I mean, it seems like the younger generations, especially that happened in the past. That was my grandparents. It doesn't really matter to me. It doesn't really impact me, but people like you and me, we see what's happening in the world right now and say, wow, we could be on the verge of something like this right now. Was there any sort of not hesitation, but did you, is this, is this a cautionary tale? You know, read Corey's story, be inspired by it, but also be ready for it because we might be seeing a whole new generation of Corey Ten Booms needing to come up and stand up against evil. Yeah, there's two elements to that. And the first is when when I when I talk about the book, when when we talk about just the book as a whole, part of the reason that readers today don't read history is because they find it boring. Right. They think it's just boring. It's just just one fact after another. And it can be. It can be very dry. So that's why I write all my books as thrillers, because people want to be in the scene, verisimilitude, we call it. They want to be in the scene. They want to know this character. They want to hear the dialogue. Um, and so I've got the dialogue from all of, all of the players yeah. that were there, you know, from mm-hmm. all these different sources. So in that sense, I, you know, I can make it 
appealing to readers, not just young readers, but readers that want the the feel of a novel where they're in the story and it's exciting and and it's it's just really fast. So that's in there. Um and then um and then so the other thing I guess is with the watchmaker's daughter you have this incredible story and and I guess what separates Corey's story from others is Corey was not unique in that and that she suffered millions of people suffered worse than she did you know a lot mm-hmm. of them were killed or executed so she's not unique there she's not unique in and that she and her family helped Jews well Hundreds of thousands of other people living in the Netherlands and other places also helped Jews and helped a lot more. What makes her unique is this, and this is our takeaway, I think, today, is Corey was able to forgive everybody. Hmm. And this was very difficult because, number one, first, she had to forgive the Germans. And this is where she was mistreated at Ravensbrück. This is where her sister died at Ravensbrück. Um, so she has to forgive the Germans, which she does. And um, secondly, she has to forgive the actual guards at Ravensbrook, many of whom were very cruel. And so she has to forgive them, which she does. In fact, in the story, towards the end, it's almost unbelievable that this is nonfiction, but she meets one of her guards in the story later when she's speaking at a church. He had become a Christian and he asked her forgiveness and she remembered this guy and she you know despised him she didn't want to touch this guy and she had to forgive him and I won't spoil what uh, what happened but she does forgive him and I'll I'll spare the details but she does forgive him and then the worst and the hardest of all that she had to forgive was the man who betrayed them the mm. ten booms mm-hmm. were betrayed not by a german but by a dutchman mm. a dutchman who had thrown his lot with the nazis and tips off the Gestapo about what the Ten Booms are doing. And so it cost her, her family, uh, they, they're all arrested. You know, her nephews, Peter, everybody goes to prison. Everybody goes to concentration camps. It, it takes the life of her father, takes the life of her sister, takes her life of her nephew, as I mentioned, uh, Keith Ten Boom, which is Willem's son. And then Willem had contracted tuberculosis when he was at the concentration camp, so he dies right after so it takes four members of her family uh, that are all because of this guy, and she has to forgive him. I mean, that's mm. about the hardest possible thing to forgive is the guy that took, you know, was responsible for your, for whole your loved one. Yeah. So she does. She forgives him. And so that's my takeaway is that that kind of, of forgiveness is, is not only admirable, it's amazing and I truly believe that in some cases, particularly like the last one, the last two, is that kind of forgiveness requires God's grace. Amen. Because we, in our own, in our own, you know, minds, in our own hearts, we don't want to forgive the person that did something that bad to us. Right. And she right. did. It's a remarkable story, and it's giving me a whole new, greater appreciation for the Ten Boom family, especially Corey and what they all went through and the legacy that they've left. And Larry, I'm so grateful that you did the due diligence, that you did the homework, did the digging, and have taken a genre that is typically reserved for people who could tell great stories to use that style to, I guess it's kind of like 
I can't think of another way of taking, you know, just a really great sermon and playing it like a, you know, really good speed metal or hard rock or something. It's so exciting. And, you know, people are all energized by it, but you go back and go, wait, that was a really good sermon. You know I mean? It, it was that, yeah. the fact, <laughs> the fact that you use that kind of that tempo and the pacing and the flow of a good action thriller mm-hmm. and say, oh, but by the way, don't forget this really happened. And this is based on actual transcripts and documentaries and diaries and things that were actually written during that time. Larry Loftus, the yep. book is called The Watchmaker's Daughter, the true story of World War II heroine, Corey Ten Boom. Link is up at thebottomlineshow.com. 60 seconds left in our time together, Larry. What, what's your hope for this project? You want to add something else? Well, my hope is that not only that people will read it and read the entire story, because there are heroes and heroines throughout the story, uh, men and women, Corey, not the least of which the book's centrally about her, but lots of heroes in this story. Uh, and it's a part of history that I think America doesn't really know that much about. I mean, there are German mm-hmm. heroes. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, mm-hmm. who's uh, I used a quote from him for my epigram. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who had a cushy job in New York and decided, no, I'm going to go back to Germany to help my country get rid of this madman, and it cost him his life. Mm-hmm. So there's there's heroes and heroines throughout the story, and um, you know I mentioned on mentioned in the last segment about being able to forgive. So for me, that's the beauty of of of, of true stories that really happened is that you get the full picture. Well, it's a beautiful picture the way you've presented it, that's for sure. Larry Loftus, the book is called The Watchmaker's Daughter, the true story of World War II heroine Corey Ten Boom. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Larry, thank you for the great work that you've done on this project, and thanks for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Really appreciate the conversation today. Thank you, Roger. Thanks for having me on. What an amazing story, and what a great book, too. Larry Loftus, a fantastic biography of Corey Ten Boom. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. It's called The Watchmaker's Daughter, a story of the true story of World War II heroine Corey Ten Boom. And we have two copies of this book to give away, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, the book about Corey Ten Boom, a true biography written like it was a, uh, uh, you know, a page-turning thriller, but it's because Larry Loftus did his homework and found out how exciting her actual real-life story is. The Watchmaker's Daughter, the true story of World War II heroine Corey Ten Boom. We've got two copies we're giving away right now at 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. One of the greatest gifts that we can give to an expectant mother is the gift of the first picture she'll ever have of her son or daughter in the womb. That comes through an ultrasound, and our friends at Preborn have an opportunity for us to make more of these ultrasounds a reality. Every time you give a donation of $28 to Preborn, that means one more ultrasound can take place. But how about giving enough money for an ultrasound machine? The cost is $15,000. It's a sizable investment. But every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and lasts at least 10 years. Now take that cost $15,000 and divide that by 2,500. Okay, now you begin to see how the cost per ultrasound goes down even more once we have more ultrasound machines to donate into preborn clinics. Make a donation right now to preborn. It's completely tax deductible, and every penny, every dollar you donate right now is going to the purchase of an ultrasound machine. 
833-850-BABY is the number to call, 833-850-2229, or go to kbrightradio.com. That's K-B-R-I-T-E radio.com. Click on the banner for Preborn and make your best donation right now. It all counts towards saving babies' lives. KBrightRadio.com. Hit the preborn banner right now. My thanks again to Larry Loftus for joining me today here on The Bottom Line on this Good News Friday edition. Boy, the good news of the story of Corey Ten Boom is, yes, it is as thrilling as you remember hearing it, but when you read The Watchmaker's Daughter, the true story of World War II heroine Corey Ten Boom by Larry Loftus, you get an idea of who Corey really was based on interviews with family members, with friends. I mean, you get the real story. And the fact that Larry Loftus is a master of what they call nonfiction spy thrillers, um, this is really cool. It's the story that we thought we all knew, but now you get the real story from World War II. The Watchmaker's Daughter, the true story of World War II heroine Corey Tenboom, is up at thebottomlineshow.com. We have two copies of the book that we're giving away right now, 800 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. And if you remember the story, if you've heard the story, if you think you knew the story of Corey Tenboom, this is a must-read. You know, when we think about history... It's so important for us, especially in the body of Christ, whether it's biblical history, wanting to have our sources absolutely straight and perfect, or in this case, I mean, there's a biblical component here because of the Ten Boom family's uh, faith in Christ, but to know the actual facts. The older I get, the more important I believe it is, and I realize maybe this is why I'm so passionate about, about books. I'm not a huge reader, not a voracious reader in terms of, hey, what are you reading this weekend type of stuff. I mean, mind if it were not for my vocation, I wouldn't spend as much time reading. But having said that, I'm grateful that God, ha- I had a pastor friend one time told me this, and I was shocked when he told me it made sense afterwards as I got older. I asked him why he went into pastoral ministry, and he said, well, it was so God would make sure I was in church every Sunday. And I kind of chuckled and said, oh, Pastor Bill, and people from Lutheran Church of the Cross know what I'm talking about. They go, what? But he said, yeah, I was kind of a rambunctious, rebellious sort, and it got to the point where only being a pastor would satisfy. And I believe God did that in the same way Johnny Erickson taught us that, look, he broke my neck to get my attention. I mean, it's amazing how God will lovingly but firmly put that yoke on us that he's made just for us and we wear it and we wear it well and proudly and in the case of Corey Ten Boom her family had to endure the Holocaust but how about living the rest of her life as a Christian ministry or a missionary rather after surviving it The Watchmaker's Daughter by Larry Loftus is up at thebottomlineshow.com and we have two copies we're giving away here on this Good News Friday 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line uh, KCBC audience, Rabbi Schneider awaits you with Discovering the Jewish Jesus. And we've got more good news coming your way tonight at 7 on the Bottom Line Extra. And then coming up next Monday at 10.30 on the Bottom Line Rewind. For those who remain on the network, a great story out of North Carolina. Yet another case where pro-lifers have been vindicated in court. And what would happen if your favorite waiter at your favorite restaurant was in dire need, but you were only eight and you didn't know how to help him? Well, I've got a good news story that's going to have a happy ending on that one. Coming up next as the bottom line continues. Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, your tour guide for this uh, Good News Friday segment. And 
you know, with everything that happens in the world, it is so nice to be able to be in a situation where we can talk about the good news of the gospel. Of course, last weekend with Easter Sunday, that's the best news ever. The good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, sent that only begotten son to earth in the form of a man, fully God and fully man, but having the discernment. Someone said, well, you know, he had to get, you know, put some of his deity away, obviously, if he was going to be God. So he wasn't at full capacity. He was kind of limited. I like to think of it this way. You're a parent, and who is it? I remember my, our, our, my friends, Scott and Terry Dawson, wonderful people from Lutheran Church of the Cross from years gone by, and I think they're still there now. Both of their kids, uh, Tyler and Jana, um, are in their, gosh, they're in their 30s now, and they're married, and they're parents, I believe, and just delightful people. And Tyler's a teacher. I, I kind of lost track of Jana. She's off in a different world, but happily married from what I understand. And I remember when I think Tyler was probably in sixth grade and Jana was around fifth grade. And I was in a small group with Scott and Terry at one point. And Terry's a teacher, just great deadpan sense of humor, just uh, the kind of math teacher you would want in high school. And then Scott, kind of nice and simple and straight ahead, but just, I mean, a man's man. Um, Worked in architecture, became a builder and a handyman, just a really great guy. So I remember one time Tyler was kind of acting out and uh, I, I saw Terry, we were, we'd had the general Bible study at church and then we were going into our small groups and I said, hey, how's it going? And she goes, eh. I said, boy, you got a couple like at that middle school age now, right? And she goes, yeah. I asked her, I said, what's it like right now? And she said, you know, the thing that I keep telling myself that helps me stay centered is I remind myself that I don't always have to be right. Even though I am right, I don't always have to, and she used air quotes, be right all the time with my kids. And I love that wisdom. I, I, I think it's so, it's so powerful to think about how often we in the body of Christ know that we're right. We, and we know the truth and the truth is set us free. Amen? And this is, I think this is really important in the world that we're living in right now because oftentimes, Stephanie Covert and I talk about this a lot. Stephanie, of course, is the personal injury attorney with personal integrity. She's been a, a partner of the Bottom Line Show for years. And she's the only, as long as, we, we're in our 12th year, as long as the Bottom Line Show's on the air, as far as I know and I'm concerned, Stephanie will be the only personal injury attorney you'll hear about here. I know there are other Christian stations that might have three mortgage people or four financial people or a couple different attorneys. We're very selective. You know, Jim and Stephanie Cover are partners with us in ministry and good friends in that regard and Dennis and Kathy Wilson same thing with the financial side of the equation and our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom and Preborn I mean this is all family right but I remember um, you know having this conversation with her and (laughs) first time she brought this up she said you know an insurance company I've never known any insurance company that overpaid a claim and I thought that's interesting and she said well yeah because they know what the law is and they're not always going to run right out and say oh we could do this and we could do this and we could do this they're going to hold back they're going to keep their powder dry using that old euphemism and i thought how interesting and then i started applying it to my own spiritual life the more i know about my faith in christ the deeper i get in relationship with him the more i also understand how much of it could become just me going through the motions I've recently completed, I think I'm even right about this. Um, I've recently completed about a two-year stretch in my spiritual growth 
where I have had some of the highest highs and lowest lows I've ever had spiritually. The highs were euphoric in terms of the potential for things that God has shown me. And the lows were devastating, gut-wrenching. I cried deeper, harder, uglier tears <laughs> during that season than ever before. And, you know, I'm five years past the heart surgery. So, I mean, initially I, I was anticipating and did get a little bit of that heart depression that uh, open heart surgery patients get a year or two after surgery. But th- I mean, I'm fi- I'm into my sixth year now with the new valve. So I mean, I I don't think it's that necessarily. But it's interesting how the more you know the Lord, the more you understand. Back to my original comment, using Terry and Scott's wisdom, you don't always have to be right, even though you are right, because it's more important for your kids to figure that out, for them to learn it, instead of us just being dictators. In the same way, when it comes to the arguments in the culture, I think this is one of the things about uh, the sin in the world that breaks my heart the most. And it's not the fact that people are sinning. We're sinful, fallen people in a sinful, fallen world. People are going to sin. That's happening, and it's going to happen. It's going to keep happening until Jesus comes back. The heartbreaking thing for me is how we in the body of Christ respond to the people who are sinning against us and sinning against each other and sinning against themselves. You think about Larry Loftus, who was my guest in the previous half hour, and his book, The Watchmaker's Daughter, and the whole issue with Corey Ten Boom and, and the Holocaust and the people of faith who were decent to the captors. I believe it was Corey Ten Boom who very famously said, after meeting one of her captors afterwards, they asked how it was that she, you know, knowing what she had been through as a child, and this guy was one of the perpetrators of that, how do you keep your sanity? I mean, without wanting to exact any kind of revenge. And she said, I believe the words were, I have to remember to forget. And I hope and pray for the church in the culture right now that as we see the events unfolding, as we see the sanctity of human life being challenged. That was a, such an eye-opening statistic a couple of Tuesdays ago when Scott Wilder from Preborn joined me here on the program and we did a concentrated effort to help raise additional funding for Preborn. And the statistic that really jumped out at me was since the overturning of Roe versus Wade, a lot of Christians have gotten kind of complacent. Ding dong, the witch is dead. We finally overturned Roe, and now we don't have to worry about the sanctity of human life anymore. But Molech is doubling down, and the minions of Molech are doubling down. The governor of California, whom I know people say, well, you know, sometimes you speak disrespectfully of this guy. I'm stating a fact when I tell you that Gavin Newsom, during his election, re-election campaign in 2022, spent a good portion of the money that he had raised. He was so confident he was going to win re-election that the Yes on Proposition 1 campaign was paid for by the re-elect Gavin Newsom campaign. The fact that Proposition 1, all the other props were what? They were numbered 28, 29, 30, whatever. But they made sure that this bill was Prop 1 and they told college-educated single women, if you don't vote yes on Prop 1, you'll lose access to health care and our democracy is at risk. And because of their efforts, this is the crazy thing though, because of their efforts, the demand for abortion in California has gone up 400%, 400 percent, 
fourfold. Where it might have been a thousand abortions a day, now it's four thousand. And California is very dubious about their numbers. I think they're releasing that statistic just to kind of brag a little bit on the quote unquote success of Governor Newsom. The bragging for them, Cal, let's face it, Planned Parenthood will admit to six, seven, eight hundred thousand abortions, maybe a million abortions per year. And more than half of them are what they call medical abortions. Can you believe that, that they call it medical? They used to call chemical versus surgical. Surgical was the stirrups and the scallop, I mean, scalpel. It was, it was brutal. You, you've seen those images before. But the so-called chemical abortion was the pill. And it's a two-form approach. The first pill starves the baby to death, and the second pill forces the mother to deliver the child, even though her body is not prepared for that. When a woman miscarries, her body says, okay, there's something wrong here. The child is not going to make it to full term, and we have to you know, make a way for the body to be eliminated from mom's womb. But when you force that on a body, the body didn't get the memo. The baby didn't get the memo. Nobody got the memo. But here come these drugs coming in here and declaring war on the baby. And the next thing you know, the baby is no longer living. And now mom's body has to do something unnatural. If it were a what we call miscarriage, the body would say, okay, we're grieving. We know this is part of the process. This is awful, but we have to do something with the kid, kid's body. But in abortion, it's like the body's going, no, we're still pregnant. <laughs> what do you mean? Get rid of the baby. We're still, no, 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 no. And the doctor has to fight their way in there and give mom's body some kind of medication to make, you see how, un- it's not health care. But when you have states passing laws saying, well, you can't say that, that's mean. That's mean-spirited. That's hate speech. It's just scientific fact. But how do we speak the truth in love in a way that we can do so so that we are speaking words of truth that many people on the opposite side of the equation have never heard before? Well, one of the ways we can do so is we can go to abortion clinics and we can stand out and peacefully pray. Uh, They can call it a protest all they want to but know that we are going to have to um, we're, we're going to have to be prepared to go to court sometimes for the result of what we do such was the case in Mecklenburg County in North Carolina when Cities for Life and Global Impact Ministries uh, a pro-life organization's all And David Benham of the Benham Brothers wound up in court over the fact that in 2020, David and these other pro-life demonstrators were outside an abortion facility and they were arrested, even though they had broken no laws. I'll tell you what happened and what the restitution was, which is good news. But also, I think what is really important about this Good News Friday case is not just that the Benhams got 20 grand for legal fees, but the way it all came about. Let's talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. 
The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years? After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We are rejoicing with some of our pro-life brothers and sisters in North Carolina uh, at the... Uh, back in April of 2020, here's what happened. April 4, 2020, just over three years ago, uh, there were a group of pro-lifers who were gathered for a First Amendment exercise, as they called it, on the sidewalk outside of an abortion facility in Charlotte, North Carolina, called a Preferred Women's Health uh, Facility. Now, according to what happened, the group that was standing outside and they were offering resources to abortion-minded women entering and exiting the facility, and they prayed outside the clinic. Now, the resources are, you know, flyers, information. If you are interested in adoption, here are some agencies that handle it. If you'd like a second opinion, there's some pregnancy resource centers. You know, all that dastardly stuff that pro-lifers are always doing. From what we've gathered, they weren't causing any commotion. They weren't keeping the women from entering or leaving the clinic. They weren't blocking driveways. That's illegal. I've been at several uh, 40 Days for Life events where we are very, very mindful of not even being on the sidewalk. I mean, if there's that one uh, Planned Parenthood clinic in Orange um, that I've shared with you often. That's a place that used to be a batting cages for uh, uh, Little League baseball teams. And I remember riding my bike over there with a baseball bat, uh, you know, not to go hit anybody, but rather to go hit some balls. And... Um, and now to go to that place and realize that this place that was such a fond memory for me in my childhood is a place where women go in and are counseled as to how to kill their preborn children. It's just, it's heartbreaking. But whenever we do go with 40 Days for Life, there are no pictures of bloody babies on signs. The, sign, the signs are all very encouraging. People will bring guitars and sing songs. And we stay off of the sidewalk as much as we can. We wave to the cars that drive by who give us the middle finger salute in return sometimes they honk and wave and say praise god and sometimes they say yeah you know um it it is what it is i mean people are going to process it any way you want to but here's what's interesting about this okay now april 4 2020 remember that was right at the beginning of the pandemic so you've got the health concern but you've also got the free speech concern as well so basically ultimately the u.s district court in the area ruled in favor of Cities for Life, uh, that's the the group that David Benham is the president of, uh, Global Impact Ministries, Love Life, and Love Life Charlotte. They were listed as the plaintiffs in the suit, and the suit was filed against the uh, city of Charlotte and Mecklenburg County. Now, what happened on April 4th is they got together, they did their thing, um, and then they were arrested for doing what they were doing. 
uh, here's what happened. The suit said that a proclamation issued by the Mecklenburg County Board of Commissioners and the mayor of the city of Charlotte prohibiting gatherings of more than 10 people was for inside of buildings and things of that nature. They're at an abortion clinic where there were more than 10 people inside the clinic. But according to the proclamation, the gathering here did not apply to them because there were people, I mean, they, they, it was, they got the exemption. Remember, they were medical facilities. When my kids and I, when my biological children and I went and got our tattoos right after Christmas last year, we went to a place that does ink and piercings and stuff like that in uh, Newport Beach. And I asked the guy how business was. The guy went to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And he said, well, business for us was great because technically the guy who owns this place is a cosmetic and reconstructive surgeon. And he does a lot of emergency medical stuff on people's breathing and this, that, and the other thing. And he got a medical exemption. So since he owns this place, we got to stay open. I said, oh boy. So remember, during the pandemic, there were a lot of rather nebulous medical quote-unquote exemptions that were handed out. And abortion clinics, ironically, were kept open. So what happened in this lawsuit was the pro-lifers are there. They're on the sidewalk. They're handing out tracts. They're you know doing what they do. Uh, according to this is the actual wording from the uh, the lawsuit while the abortion clinic began filling up with clients and numerous people roamed the parks and sidewalks for recreation and exercise remember they were telling you to get out during the pandemic government officials targeted these individuals from cities for life and love life who were praying on the sidewalk they were maintaining a safe distance from one another and from the people for whom they were praying they were helping women who were interested in the charitable services they offered at the request of the women. So basically, I mean, there were eight people who were arrested and they were charged with violating emergency prohibitions and restrictions, according to the report. In other words, the pandemic restrictions that were there. And this is the kind of stuff that Christians were facing a lot of. You know, the shopping mall could stay open. The restaurant could stay open at 50 to 60% capacity, but the church could only have 10 people in it even though the shopping mall is open 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and the church is holding one service. So good news, and our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom, as they always do, uh, took this case and were able to get a resolution. Not only were they able to get a resolution, but now they've got some legal fees that they've collected on as well. Mecklenburg County has agreed to pay $20,000 in attorney's fees following the arrest of David Benham and seven other pro-life demonstrators outside that abortion facility back in April of 2020. Now, here's what the ADF said, according to senior counsel Denise Harrell. Uh, we commend Mecklenburg County officials for finally agreeing to respect the free speech right of Mr. Benham and the other pro-life citizens and for acknowledging their freedom to pray and speak in the public square. And we invite the city of Charlotte to follow suit. Now, the lawsuit was filed against the city of Charlotte and Mecklenburg County. Mecklenburg County has, has solved their part of the puzzle. Now we'll see what the city of Charlotte does. But here's what I was talking about earlier. The whole good news part of the good news story is the way this was handed down. I've been following this story since it first broke, and I have not seen any of the angry rhetoric, we're calling for boycotts, screaming and yelling and this, that, and the other thing. Instead, what we've seen is Alliance Defending Freedom handling things the way they do. And by the way, if you would like to support Alliance Defending Freedom, I highly recommend that you do. 
there but for the grace of God. You might be in a 40 days for life uh, prayer vigil sometime, or maybe just any kind of prayer vigil at your church and have some crabby atheist or angry humanist come in and say, you're breaking the law. And Alliance Defending Freedom comes in and says, no, actually they're not. And we'll represent you. They'll represent you for free. But it's because we have made donations to them. And that's why we've got the banner up at uh, CrawfordMediaGroup.net. And I encourage you to call that, uh, to click on that link and make your best tax-deductible donation today. We've also got it up at KBrightRadio.com as well. But the good news here is just the way that the brothers and sisters in Christ who, I mean, they took legal action because I think that was the right thing to do in this case. But these fees are not exorbitant. And this is, I don't see people running around saying, yeah, we wanted court. Woohoo, we're so excited about that. But rather, it's just fairly but firmly, lovingly standing up and saying, look, we know, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, but they did wrong and there needs to be a legal remedy here. So good on you, Alliance Defending Freedom and Benham's and everybody involved and Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, city of Charlotte. We can't wait to put you in a good news story. At some point here, when you settle, you're into the case. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And as we continue, uh, our final good news story for the week uh, involves the power of, yes, what happens when a child sees a friend in need, and so he steps up to help his friend, and next thing you know, the friend has tens of thousands of dollars more to help deal with a bit of a personal tragedy that they were going through. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You know the old expression, a picture is worth a thousand words? Well, if you're an expectant mom and you go to a pregnancy health center that is in partnership with Preborn, one picture can say way more than that. And that picture I'm talking about is an ultrasound picture. Every donation that goes to Preborn goes to providing ultrasounds for women who are expecting children and they want to know what all of their options are. When you call 833-850-BABY right now, you give a gift of $28 that provides one ultrasound. But if you give a gift toward the purchase of an ultrasound machine, now that's a $15,000 investment, but every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and lasts a minimum of 10 years. That's 2,500 ultrasounds available to women right now. Think of all the babies, thousands of babies' lives that will be saved by your donation to preborn right now. Call 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Make your best donation right now. $50, $100. Maybe you want to give $15,000. It's completely tax deductible. We've had a couple of bottom line listeners step up and do just that. 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn right now. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Our final Good News Friday story for the week. It's going to put a smile on your face, though. I don't know why it made me crave waffles. I, yeah, trust me, I mean, thanks to COVID and uh, not, not being as active as I used to be, uh, it's a combination of things. But, I, you know, that COVID weight that most of us put on, I think the average was 30 to 35 pounds. I'm holding on to mine for dear life. I, I don't know what you did with yours. But uh, as a matter of fact, sometimes I feel like I'm actually hanging on to some the other weight for other people, too. Uh, but, that's, you know, it is what it is. But there are days, I'll tell you, when waffles are up there, the struggle is real. Um, we don't have Waffle House around here that much, do we? We've got other places that are just you know, equally as challenging. But an eight-year-old boy uh, befriended his favorite uh, Waffle House server. And the story went viral. And next thing you know, man, uh, it's just amazing how 
showing a little bit of kindness can actually lead to something much bigger and much better. Uh, this is a story that wound up winding on the uh, the front of Good Morning America here. Because it's just a s- simple story about a kid who has a favorite server at a restaurant, knew that that server needed some help and wanted to help out. Here's the deal. Kazen Hunter, eight years of age, loved going to Waffle House, and his favorite server was a guy named Devontae Gardner. Devontae was going through some tough times, and he wasn't getting into a big deal about it with his his young friend, but every time the family came in, he was grateful for the tip and always gave him great service. So Kazen told his mother, Mom, we gotta we got to help out. Devontae and his two children had to leave their apartment and live in a motel because he had some car trouble. He wasn't making a lot of money working at uh, Waffle House, so uh, Kazen asked his mom, can we do something like one of those GoFundMe things? And they said, sure. So they set up a GoFundMe for him, and they set up a goal of $5,000. Well, people heard about the story. It went viral. They started sharing with all their friends, hey, if you want to help out Kazan's friend Devante, uh, you can make a donation. So 5000 became 10000 became 20000 At last count, it's now up to $70,000. It's interesting, too, because whatever happens here, Kazen Hunter did not tell Devontae Gardner that he was doing this. He and his family used to go to Waffle House and just have breakfast and hang out and whatever, and they always liked to sit in Devontae's section. They left him a nice tip, but they got to know him, and when they found out that he was a single dad with two kids and car repairs kicked him out of his apartment, basically, because they cost too much, they were able to uh, you know, raise some money. Good Morning America picked up on the story and they came and covered it. And basically he said, you know what? This is Devontae Gardner's reaction. They told him that his friendship with Case and Hunter's family netted him a $70,000 gift that would kind of help him get back right again. Uh, he, he just said, wow, it's amazing to see how a little bit of kindness goes a long way. Reminds me of the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another. Be full of pity. Have forgiveness for one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. And then uh, Devante said, you know, next time Kaysen has graduation, whether it's elementary school, middle school, high school, college, whatever, you can bet I'm going to be there because he is truly my friend. Brothers and sisters, a friend loves at all times. A friend shows kindness to someone. And kindness does not mean you just tell somebody, hey, I'm praying for you. If they have a need, you're doing what you can to reach out and meet that need. You may not wind up raising $70,000 for a guy whose car broke down and wound up losing his apartment as a result. But it's amazing how when kindness is your guide, when the love of Christ, when you remember the mercy that Jesus Christ showed you and me on the cross, We just celebrated it two weeks ago. We just celebrated it last week. Think about that kindness. God's kindness leads us to repentance from our sin. God's mercy spares us from death and hell. God's compassion restores us to wholeness. And God's forgiveness means the sin debt has been paid in full. 
So if God showed all of those attributes to us through his son bleeding and dying on the cross, can't we show those same attributes to others in the name of Jesus Christ? That's the good news. That's the gospel. And that's the bottom line.